0: 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I'm going to read the last paragraph, starting in verse 13 all the way to the end of the chapter. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Speaking through the Apostle Paul, the word of God says this, but we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep with these words. You all know that the first two chapters of the Bible, Genesis, describe God's creation, that you see his power, you see his care. He makes the universe, he makes the planet, he makes the animals, but last of all, in his image, he creates man. And he created us as humans as a special unity of body and soul. At the end of that first creation week, he rests on the seventh day, he saw that everything was very good. And it stayed that way until we come to Genesis chapter three, which describes for us the fall. Satan deceives the woman, she and the man disobey God, and as a result, God pronounces a curse upon the world. The, the, The curse is the manifestation of rebellion and difficulty And we see that both in the physical aspects and in the spiritual sphere of life. Physically, the woman is gonna have her pain increase in childbearing. She's also going to rebel against the leadership of her husband. For the man, his pain is increased. He must now work a cursed ground that rebels against him. Uh, Genesis 3 says there's going to be thorns, there's going to be thistles, meaning that didn't exist beforehand. There was nothing to fight back against the, the man. And we also know that the physical aspects of the curse introduced into this world, sickness and death. And so we have externally all kinds of sicknesses and diseases, everything from a common cold to the more severe things. Internally, we have bodies that are subject to pain, subject to sickness, and ultimately subject to decay. That's the physical side. The spiritual effect of the curse was a sinful nature in all of us that rebels against God's design for us. As humans, we were created in his image. We are created to represent God in what we do. We are created to to showcase the heart of God in the world. But instead of reflecting his glory and his character, and instead of submitting to our God, we live to fulfill our own purposes instead of his. Romans 5.12, a lot of you know it, describes it. It says, sin came into the world through one man. And death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sin. Sin is, we could say, the open wound and death was the infection that came as a result. Verse 14 of Romans 5 says, death reigned. That is the inescapable reality of life. We think about it more as we get older or as we're faced with death, but death reigns. Apart from some miraculous intervention of God, everybody dies, everything dies. Music instruments, carpet, chairs, teddy bears, your blanket, it's all going bad, and so are our bodies. All of us are affected by sickness, by death, and and death and sickness bring a very distinct kind of pain. That's why the pharmaceutical industry can make so much money. We're trying to to do the best we can to detain these things, but it is an inescapable reality. You guys know the adage, there's nothing so sure in life as death and taxes. The Thessalonian church understood that pain because they had had to say goodbye to a number of their brothers and sisters. We saw last week in verse 13 that their grief was not the common grief of, of, of the world, but it was a grief that did not have the true hope of Jesus Christ. He said, I don't want you to grieve the way the rest of the world does without hope. So the church didn't have a complete theology about death and about the end of this phase of life, and so Paul writes to them, and ultimately his goal is to comfort them. It's to encourage them. He wants them to know the truth so that they would have hope. And so what's that truth? What are we Christians waiting for? You remember that from chapter one, verse nine. He says, you're waiting for the coming of Christ. What's gonna happen when Christ comes? What's gonna happen specifically, this is what's on their mind, with those who have died. Remember, they think the dead people aren't gonna experience the return of Christ. They may be stuck in a separate heaven or a second-class citizen. We're going to continue the study starting in verse 16 today. And just looking at those final three verses, I want to show you three phases, if you would, of what's to come. And this is not all of eschatology. It's not all of end times. But just in the next event on God's calendar, what's going to happen? I'm going to give you all three phases at once. So if you take notes, please don't feel like you have to get them all down because we'll go through them one at a time. Okay, but the first phase is the declaration of the Lord. The declaration of the Lord. The second phase is the resurrection of the dead and the third phase is the transformation of the living. So we'll go one at a time but the first one is the declaration of the Lord. This is what Paul describes for us in verse 16. He says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Just in reading that one verse, how many of you caught the hints in that verse that Paul is now switching to metaphorical or symbolic language? I hope none of you did, because it's not there, okay? I just want to get that clear as we begin. There's no indication here whatsoever that Paul is now going to discuss some kind of spiritual reality that's happening right now. It makes no sense to say that he intends the Thessalonians to take the letter up to this point literally, and now he shifts on them. This is how I take it. This is, I believe, if we're faithfully interpreting the Bible, we need to take this. He is speaking literally. That's how he intends this message to be taken. He is describing a future event. He says, Jesus himself, emphasizing, it's not just someone on his behalf. Jesus himself will descend. He will come for his church, and it will be a loud and triumphant declaration. Now, just to fill in the picture a little bit, you'll see in verse 17 that at this point, we are going to be gathered with Christ in the clouds. So it doesn't appear at this point that Jesus comes all the way down to earth, but he comes from heaven, he's in the clouds. We'll talk more about that eventually, I think next week. But he comes down from the glory of heaven and he calls his people to himself. That's phase one, the declaration of the Lord. And in that declaration, Paul describes three sounds that will mark it. They might happen all at once, they might happen one after another, but there's every indication that these sounds will be heard. First it says, verse 16, there will be a cry of command. In the Greek, it's just one word. It's a shout, but it's translated cry of command because it's a shout that conveys authority. An authoritative order will be given by the Lord. This word was used in the Greek for hunters shouting at their dogs, shouting orders to their dogs. It was used for charioteers shouting orders at their horses. It was used for military officials shouting orders, giving commands to the soldiers under them. This is an authoritative shout. And just to understand, we live in a culture that really does not like authority. We don't want to be nice. We want to be kind. Don't ever, you know, raise your voice. It's not polite. You know, it doesn't matter if the house is on fire. It doesn't matter if someone's life is in danger. Shouting, you know, might make someone feel uncomfortable. Don't do that. Well, on the one hand, we know that an angry shout is a lack of self-control. It's an expression of, of, of anger, wrath. But there are times, those of his parents or coaches know that there are times where a shout is appropriate. And Christ will come, and he will come with the shout of authority, and the world will hear A good parallel here might be the order Jesus gave when he raised Lazarus from the dead. This is John chapter 11. It says, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And that's exactly what happened. This is the authority of Jesus Christ. He walked into a home or into a city. There was a dead man already buried. It's the fourth day, remember? He stinks, that's what they said. He's already been dead four days. And he gave orders to a dead man And the dead man obeyed. Some pastors have speculated that Jesus called Lazarus by name because if he hadn't specified whom he was talking to, all the dead would have come out. (laughs) One day, Christ will come. He will come with an urgent shout of authority. He will summon his people, and those who belong to him will respond. It reminded me also of Peter when he saw Jesus walking on the water. It wasn't just, wow, someone's walking on the water. Lord, help me, I want to do that too. That's not what he said. He said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Peter understood that if Jesus commands the miraculous, it's going to happen. So Christ comes and he cries out, at least we know from scriptures he's crying out, but that doesn't mean the world is going to understand. I think that the world is gonna recognize that something astonishing is taking place, but they won't know its true significance. There are a couple examples of something like this in the Bible, Acts, uh, first one, John chapter 12, Jesus prays to God and God responds audibly. He actually says, I have glorified my name, I will glorify it again, God spoke to his son and there were people present and it says there's some in the crowd said that it was thunder and other people in the crowd said, no, no, an angel has spoken to him. So, so they heard something but they didn't understand. The same kind of thing happened at Paul's conversion. Paul wasn't by himself. Paul was in a group. Remember the light came from heaven. He's on his horse. He's knocked off the horse. Verse nine, uh, Chapter nine of Acts says the men who were with Paul heard the voice. It means they heard the sound of it But then in Acts 22 when Paul's in Jerusalem and he's giving his his testimony and his defense, he says, the people around around him saw the light but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking. So I think something very similar will happen when Christ calls his own. The world in general is not going to understand truly what's going on. I I think they're going to do everything they can to deny this has anything to do with Christ or the Bible but I believe they will hear the sound. The second sound, Paul describes again, this is under the declaration of the Lord, is the voice of an archangel. In the Greek, the word for voice could also mean the word sound. So it could be referring to a sound that's being made, it could be referring to words being spoken. I don't think Paul is saying that Jesus is going to sound like an archangel. I think he's meaning to say an archangel will be present, and when archangels are present, there's a sound. You see that in the book of Revelation where they're gathered around the throne of God and there are peals of thunder with the angels. An archangel refers to a higher ranking of angel. There's only one angel given that rank in the Bible. That is Michael. Doesn't mean there aren't more, but that's the only one we know with with that ranking. If you remember uh, in Daniel, when we studied it, chapter 10, Michael came. He says he's known as the chief prince, so some higher rank of angelic being. In the book of Jude, Michael is called the archangel Michael. It's possible that it's Michael who will come with the Lord. We don't know. It's also possible that if it is Michael, he'll come with a whole nother posse of angels with the Lord. Christ's coming is connected many times in scriptures with, with, with angels. You know, when, when, when he was born, angels showed up. The multitude of angels appeared and they pronounced to the shepherd, the Savior is here. Christ has come. Christ's resurrection, not as large of a group. Also angels came. They announced the truth concerning Christ. There are also a number of passages in the New Testament that speak of Christ coming in glory with his holy angels. So it's possible that you have Christ, an archangel, at least one, and then a multitude of angels. And if that's the case, what are the angels going to be doing? Well, from the third sound listed, it seems there will be at least one angel blowing a trumpet. That's the third sound in the Lord's declaration, the sound of the trumpet of God. You have a cry of command, you have the sound of the archangel, and now you've got the sound of the of the trumpet. This is the Lord's declaration. You know, to us, when you hear trumpet, we tend to think of musical instruments. But Jesus, I don't think it means he's gonna come with the mariachi band, you know, announcing his arrival. Trumpets weren't primarily music instruments in the biblical culture. Trumpets were primarily used as signals. They were used in war. You'd rally the troops. You intimidate your enemy. They were used as part of formal ceremonies like military exercises or funerals. Uh, The Greek goddess of victory. Anybody know who that is? The Greek goddess of victory. Someone said it, I think. Nike. Nike. That's why they named it Nike. She's depicted many times with a trumpet. She's announcing her victory. Trumpets, you guys, Dusty, you play trumpet, right? Trump, uh, sort of, try to. Trumpets are not a subtle instrument, okay? They are loud. They are piercing. Some might say Annoying. It's different from the horns. So in the Old Testament, they speak of the horns. They actually had ram's horns. This is different. This is an actual, uh, usually bronze or some type of metal, brass. Now they're brass. They were extended, and it was a loud sound made to be heard. That's how it will be when Christ comes for his people. There will be a piercing sound, and the world will know that a life-altering event has taken place. This is the declaration of the Lord. That's the first phase Paul describes. And we know there are phases because he says, then. He says it a couple times, then. He's describing a sequence here, an order. What is it that Christ is announcing? He has a cry of command. He has the sound of an archangel. He has a blasting trumpet. What's, What's next? Phase two of Paul's description here is the resurrection of the dead. So you've got the declaration of the Lord and now the resurrection of the dead. Look at the end of verse 16. The sounds are going to come. And the dead in Christ will rise first. This is not a generic reference for the Thessalonians. Just, oh, the dead are going to rise. They had names. They had faces. The people, the brothers and sisters whom they loved, whom they had to say goodbye to, whom they, for whom they grieved at their death, they're going to rise from the dead. In other words, they're not gonna miss anything related to Christ's program when the world moves into its final stages. They are, in fact, gonna have a front row seat. Again, the end of verse 16, they will rise first. Remember, all of this is meant to be corrective. All of this is meant to be addressing the false and the hopeless beliefs that the Thessalonians had. Verse 15 said, Those who are alive when Christ comes, when Christ appears, they the living people will in no way proceed or go before or have an advantage over those who have died. And now he says it from the other side. They're going to be first. They will be the first to receive their resurrection bodies, their glorified bodies. It doesn't make any sense to say we're going to come back from the dead and live with Christ forever and not have a brand new body. We're not going to be zombies forever. This is a resurrection like the resurrection of Jesus. The souls of those who belong to Christ will come with him and they will be reunited but now with the newly glorified body perfectly made to live in eternity with Christ in a new heavens and a new earth. In Philippians 3 verse 20, Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. This is not our true home. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from heaven, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So he's reminding them in that passage, we serve an all-powerful Lord. He's the ruler of the universe. He will destroy his enemies And our Lord will give to his adopted brothers and sisters new bodies similar to his own. Romans 8.23 says right now, we as Christians, we groan. We're groaning in our bodies. There's a physical aspect to the groaning because we feel the effects of sin as we get older. We're over the hill and now you're coming down and we do all we can to delay that. We do all we can to, to hide that. But we're groaning physically. We're also groaning spiritually. We groan spiritually because within us is the perfect Holy Spirit of God and yet at the end of Romans 7, it's in this body of death. So we're burdened by sin. We're burdened by sickness. And what we're waiting for is the fullness of our adoption as sons and daughters. That's the way Paul words it. And that is the redemption of our bodies. 2 Corinthians 5 says something very similar. We, We groan right now he says, we're living in an earthly tent. We, we, you know, tents are supposed to be temporary. You don't live in a tent usually. But he says, one day we're gonna receive our heavenly dwelling. So the goal of the Christian life, the hope of the Christian life is not to say, well, one day I'm gonna be free from my body, from my body. My spirit's gonna be free to go wherever it wants. I'm no longer held in a physical body. That's not the goal. The hope of the Christian life is to be given a superior, new, eternal body. And what's that body going to be like? That's, not, that's, a, good, that's a good question to ask. We should, we should be asking that question. Kids ask that kind of question. The Corinthians ask that exact same question. So I want you to mark your place here in Thessalonians and jump back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The entire chapter is focused on the resurrection of Christ. I encourage you, if you're not sure what to read tomorrow or this week, spend a lot of time in 1 Corinthians 15. The opening verses of the chapter deal with the fact of the resurrection, why it matters, why, why we can't ignore that. And then he begins to describe some of the practical outworkings of that as well as the questions. Look at verse 35 with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 35. He writes, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they Come? You foolish person, what you sow, that is like a seed, what you put in the ground, does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen. And to each kind of seed, its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another kind. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For stars differ from star in glory." I'm not gonna comment too much because we're not studying this today, but basically, Paul wants the church to know that the kind of body we have right now, the kind of body you have in this life is not exactly the same kind of body that we're going to receive in glory. It will be a new body, and it will be, if you will, at another level, just like the glory of a tree is greater than the glory of the little seed that was placed in the ground. Keep reading. In verse 42, he says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead what is sown is perishable what is raised is imperishable it is sown in dishonor it is raised in glory it is sown in weakness it is raised in power it is sown a natural body it is raised a spiritual body if there is a natural body there is also a spiritual body Okay, that may not answer all the questions you have about the new body in the resurrection, but the basic idea is that all the negatives of this life, all the negatives of this body are going to be done away with. They're not gonna be there anymore. Your body right now, the bodies we have, maybe a good comparison, is a piece of fruit. Okay, a piece of fruit starts out real small. We started out very small. We grew in our mother's womb. Then we were born and we kept maturing like a a banana ripening. But eventually... All of us are going to perish, right? Eventually you go back and there's a black banana and it's too far to eat. It's too far to make banana bread. It's moldy. It's got to be thrown away. It's it's dead. This is life. We do what we can, again, to hide it. We all feel it in different ways. But this body, this life is corruptible. You got to understand that. Uh, At some point, maybe in the last decade, I realized, you know, the men who are older than me, 50, 60, 70, in their mind, they're still 30, I, I realize, you know, I see them as a sixty-year-old man, but they don't see themselves as a sixty-year-old man. That is life. We went to do "Love Thy Neighbor" yesterday, and Ordie uh, she came out and she was talking to her neighbor, and she said, "You know, there was something on the floor, and I, I can't pick it up. If I bend over to pick it up, I'll lose my balance. I'll fall over." And, and we think, "Oh, that's what happens when you get to an older age." But they don't expect that. This is life. This is the frustration of life. Our body can't do what we think it should do. Our body starts to go bad. It deteriorates and it dies. It happens in different ways, it happens at different speeds, but it will happen to all of us. None of us live forever. This body will perish. But the new body, Paul says, is imperishable. It's made to endure for eternity. The body we have now has, has, is corruptible, but the new life is incorruptible. There's gonna be a, a physical incorruptibility and there's gonna be a spiritual incorruptibility. So instead of feeling pulled down by all the physical things and by all the spiritual things, those of us who've already surrendered to Christ, we've come to him in humble repentance, we're going to move into the opposite. Instead of going over the hill and down, we're going to go an eternity of, of flourishing for the Lord. The life we have now, this body is a humble body. There are plenty of reasons to be humbled, physical reasons and spiritual reasons. The new body is going to be one of splendor, he says, and glory, not dishonor, not shame. In other words, you're going to like the way you look. I guarantee it. You're going to enjoy everything that you've been made by God to do. There's no more weakness. There's no more powerlessness. And then spiritually, this is more important, you're going to have the capacity to live to the fullness of your potential as a child made in the image of God. So there's no more frustration spiritually. There's only spiritual strength. And that's what Paul means in verse 44. He says, we're going to get a spiritual body. He doesn't mean we're going to be a ghost. That's not what the Bible teaches. It's not what Christ did. He ate with his disciples. They touched him. They held him. What he means by saying we're going to have a spiritual body is that we're going to have a new body that is now perfectly aligned with the spirit of God, not one that fights against it. This is supposed to excite us. This is our faith. This is our hope in Jesus Christ. No more sickness from the tiny things that bother us to the bigger things. No more weakness, no more shame, no more frustration for those who belong to Christ, a perfectly glorified body just like that of Jesus. It doesn't matter how the Christians died. It doesn't matter where or in what condition their body is. All that matters is they repented of their sin they trusted in Christ, they trusted in their Lord who died and rose again, and like their Lord, they will rise again. So then what happens? That's the second phase. Christ comes, he declares himself, he calls his people, the dead are raised. You can go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. What's the third phase for today? It's nice to know that the dead are going to rise, but what about the people who are alive? What happens to them? that's the last phase. Phase three, the transformation of the living. This is more implied than explicit. Verse 17, he says, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Like I said, our transformation, the transformation of the living is implied here, but it's absolutely silly to think that the people who died, you know, they get new bodies, and we who are alive, we go in with some corruptible body into the new heavens. That's not how it works. Once the dead are raised, it's time then for the living to be transformed as well. Verse 17 says we're going to be caught up in the clouds. The Greek verb there for caught up is harpazo, which I don't think is a very familiar word, But it's a pretty violent term. It speaks of being snatched, taken by some outside force, sometimes even dragged, it's translated, by an outside force. In Matthew 11, it's used in connection to violent men seizing a kingdom. In Matthew 12, it's used for a thief stealing property. He's dragging off stolen property. In Matthew 13, it's used for Satan snatching up the gospel truth from the hearts of unbelievers. In John 10, the word is used for a wolf snatching sheep. In Acts 8, it's used for the time that Philip baptized the Ethiopian eunuch, and then it says he was no more. He, he was snatched, and he disappeared. And then in Acts 23, it's used for, for Paul when he is about to be killed by a violent mob, and the Roman authorities have to come and drag him out to save his life. So that's a lot of biblical examples, but the point is, I want you to understand that this is a, this is a violent type of word being used here. Christ is going to snatch his people away. In the Latin translation of the Bible, the verb used is rapior, which is relating to the Latin term rapturo, which is where we get the English word rapture. So you hear the rapture of the church, the rapture of the church, that comes from this passage. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 is the only passage in the Bible that directly speaks to what many people refer to as the rapture of the church. He's gonna take his own. We're gonna be snatched away if you will, this is this is you know an alien abduction from the supreme alien, the creator of all things, the creator of the universe. We will be taken. Those who are dead are gonna be raised. Those who are alive will be snatched up and they're not gonna taste death. They will, however, be immediately transformed. At the end of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says it's a mystery. He's speaking of the word mystery in the New Testament is used for things that weren't, revealed earlier, and so people didn't know, and you're having to fill in the gaps. Paul says, we shall not all sleep, meaning we're not all going to die, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. This is the final trumpet of the church age. The church age is coming to come to an end. Those who've trusted in Christ, whether they're living or dead, they're going to be transformed. That's the theology of what's going on. But again, going back to last week, Paul's goal is not just theology. It's not a, hey, sit down, guys. Let's talk about eschatology right now, the end times. He wants to comfort them. He wants to encourage them. They've had brothers and sisters die. Look at verse 17 one more time. And I want you to notice how much the focus here is not just on the rapture or or, or the details, but it's, it's the unity of the people. He says, we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord So for those who've received the grace of Christ, the living and the dead are going to be united in a glorified body and they'll be reunited forever. They'll be with their Lord and their Savior who has graciously given us eternal life. Again, this is meant as an encouragement. That's why verse 18 says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Keep repeating these truths both to yourself and to those around you. This is our hope. Death is not the end, as much as it hurts. Our church is not a stranger to sorrow and sickness. We've had people be afflicted with things now. We have people born with, with conditions, diseases, make life very difficult. We've also already lost brothers and sisters, grandsons, granddaughters, grandpas, grandmas, sons and daughters. I've been on staff here eight, almost coming up on eight years. And many of you know, my first week here was a funeral. My first week here on staff full time was a funeral. And since that time, I looked at my records this week. Our church and I have been part of 30 more funerals. So that's 31 funerals by my count in less than eight years. And that's not counting all those who passed Before I came on staff, growing up in this church and all the people we've had to say goodbye to, you guys know who they are. We, We understand what it is to face tragedy and death. We know what it is to live under the curse, both on our bodies and on those who've passed. But the message of Christ is that death itself has an expiration date. Death does not get the final say. Christ has won the victory for us in his death and in his resurrection, and we will be raised together with the Lord. So he says, encourage one another. To the world, these kinds of things sound like science fiction, but we know it's the truth. That's what he says in verse 15. This we declare to you by word from the Lord. We can be confident that this is what's going to take place. The world right now, as good or as bad as it seems, is running exactly on God's calendar. And no one's gonna change his perfect plan and no one's gonna change his perfect timing. So what we're tasked to do is set our sights on that day. 1 John 3 says this, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So you set your hope in Christ and he'll purify you until the day that he comes. When is that day? When is Christ going to come and initiate the next phase of of human history? Lord willing, we'll talk about that next time. Let's pray. Father, you made us in your image and yet we know that that image is marred, defaced. We can no longer, because of our physical and spiritual limitations, live up to the glory of your name. We can no longer fulfill your purpose of of honoring you in all that we do, of loving you with our entire being, our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength. We thank you that Christ has come, true God of true God, and yet in the likeness of human flesh, he came to taste death for us and to conquer it in his resurrection. We're grateful that we know that Christ will come And what is beginning to be undone in our spirits will be completely undone in all creation. And the curse will be removed for those who've trusted in you. I pray as a church, you give us hope and joy. Even when we do grieve, even when we remember the tragedies of this life, we wanna place them in light of your glorious story. When we will look back and know that your plan was perfect and all things were for our good and for your glory. Christ will be exalted forever as our champion and our Lord. We ask that you would give us urgency and joy as we proclaim these truths to the world. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.